Yes, you can fill up the gas. You can start it up. You can tune it up. You can even you can even sharpen the blades. But do not, whatever you do, do not start mowing the lawn already. Oh, hi. It's Pete Pomisano. And this week on Off-Road, we have a couple of really interesting interviews for you. The first one, the first one is on our RLTP ensemble at work elsewhere. Now, first of all, is a guy named Lou who builds all of the sets for our LTP, Lou Iannone. And this man is so fascinating. He has so many things he's working on. And uh, you know me, I truly admire craftsmen. I admire people who are good at what they do, especially when it's something that I don't do and can't do. And this guy is great at what he does. He's not the set designer, he's the set builder, without whom none of this would ever become reality. So we're gonna talk to Lou about all the projects he's working on all over Western New York. And then, in honor of the fact that Little Women Now opened this past weekend, our LTP's own playwright-in-residence Miss Donna Hoke will be here to talk about her history, where she came from, how she started writing plays. You won't believe that story. Donna Hoke is going to talk to us all about that and Little Women Now, and I hope you'll enjoy that. Oh, yes, and I guess we'll give you a few more hints about what this clock ticking means for this summer's history project. But first, let's start off with Lou Iannone. And I do have to tell you that the quality of this is going to be suspect right off the bat because I ended up recording him off the telephone because we couldn't get Zoom to work properly on his computers. You know, you'd think a guy who had this much talent and skill with major tools would be able to figure out how to make his computer work, but you'd be incorrect. So the sound quality is lousy, and we even have a little bit of extra echo in there to give it a sort of an ethereal quality. So here's Lou Iannone, here on RLTP's Off-Road, Through My Phone. Hey, welcome, Lou Iannone. Hi, Peter. (laughs) This is a segment called RLTP Ensemble at Work Elsewhere, and uh, you're the one who's been most at work in the most elsewheres that I can think of. Were you one of the first ensemble members? Uh, I was not, actually. I, gosh, I've been with them for eight years now. So I joined them right after their 10th anniversary. So we're coming up on their, their 20th in a, in a season or two. No, I uh, I joined for some extra money. That's <laughs> what it was. <laughs> I had a friend a friend of mine was telling me, he said, that, you know, looking for someone who can do some building. I knew him through a, a previous job. And uh, I was getting married, so I needed some extra money. And I met Scott and... We had a conversation. I started building, and within a year, I was like, do you want to be an ensemble member? I'm like, sure, why not? And I've been with them. I fell in love with doing it, so I've been doing it for the last eight years. Well, what's your what's your actual occupation? Are you a builder? Are you a contractor? Are you a carpenter? Or are you a jack-of-all-trades? I have a master's degree in industrial design, and uh, I work as an independent contractor. So what my main is, I design and build museum exhibits is my main uh, my main job, which I've done for the Buffalo Museum of Science. I'm currently... Uh, designing building the museum over at the Italian Cultural Center, the, the new one that just opened up. No, I want to ask about that in a minute, the Italian Cultural Center. But but so yeah. how, how does one get a gig doing museum displays and that sort of thing? It, it's a long and winding path. Uh, 
Uh, I was going to be the next great thing in industrial design, which is product design, and couldn't get a job there. So what happened was there was an um, opening for the exhibits coordinator at the Buffalo Museum of Science. A bunch of us applied. Three of us made the final cut. One guy got the job. Another guy got the job as a teacher there, and I got the job as come in every once in a while, work my butt off for six weeks for these rotating exhibits they wanted to do. And after I did the first one, I swore they were never going to call me again. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. <laughs> they called me. I did about half a dozen for them. And because of that job, by word of mouth, and also working with this company called Thinking Outside of the Square, which I was a contractor for them too, I learned more, got to know more about building and about the world of exhibit design and, and whatnot. And the museum kept calling me back. And through them, I started getting these other jobs. And it's all just been, hey, do you know a guy who can do this? I'm like, yeah, I do. Matter of fact, here's his number. And that, that's how I got these well, jobs. Now, have you have you built every set since you started with RLTP? Yeah, I think I'm knocking at the door 40 sets so far. Wow. And, and I know you just fit, recently, I don't know if it's finished or not, but I was just there at the theater. You're doing the Little Women Now set. Is that... Is that finished building now? Yeah, that is up and ready to go. That's the last one for this season. But I do want to talk about some of the other things that you've been doing, many of them at the Buffalo Museum of Science. And mm -hmm. you installed the Arctic dinosaurs, you're the new kids' discovery space. All of those things go on there. And then you're also doing things like this project that you're currently working on, the Italian Cultural Center. What do they want from you, and, and what did they actually hope to accomplish and turn that space into well it was the old north park library mm -hmm. and they renovated the whole place they put a kitchen in the bottom whatnot and they had this as soon as you walk in the front doors that left area that was part of the open library at one point it's not a big space but what they want to do with it is kind of tell the story of the italian community in buffalo it's kind of um well what originally happened was one of the once again word of mouth they heard about me and they already had some propositions from hadley and and some other places and I went to talk to them just about doing the fabricating work. And when I was there, apparently I asked the right questions because they're like, do you want to take a crack at submitting a proposal for design work? Which I did, and they liked better, so I got the job. And the idea is, yeah, it really just kind of snuck it underneath there. And I had to do a presentation to the board and everything. And it was funny because it's really about the community. It's about family. It's about, it's about the story. It's not like hard, cold facts. It's about the story of the Italian culture, the Italian community, what they brought to Western New York and what they're continuing to bring to Western New York. So when I talked to the board, the gentleman who's director over there, John Vecchio, he read my CV and just told him, you know, my, my education and things that I had done. I told him my life in Buffalo. I told him that my, you know, my grandparents came here, you know, 90 years ago and my entire family's here and we know it. And they, the biggest thing he says, like, so you know the faces, you know the story. I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's just it. I'm, I have that background, that culture. So that's what we're going to do. And none of it is static. I mean, there's like static displays, but there's a whole section of it that is rotating. You can rotate and highlight different families, different events, different cultural events that are going on, artists. That whole deal. So you constantly have something new, so you keep bringing people in to look at it. Plus, it's also incorporated their storage space. They need a storage space. So it's a lot of little things that make it one huge, one big project in a small little area. And what's your projected completion date for this thing? Probably the fall. They had some money issues or they didn't get some of the grants that they were promised. I see. Uh, so that's, yeah, that just takes a little longer. I mean, 80% of the design work's done. Now it's about what collection items do we want to use? Where are they going to be placed? Are we happy with, you know, the narrative that we've written? So it's the detail work after that. And then doing some sourcing for programs that will allow their entire collection to be on display, like in a digital format. Yes. 
and you can just you can just scroll through it or you can look up a family or whatnot so we're trying to find a decent and affordable one to do that because i think that will also add to that constant you know adding to it i see and when you're doing all of these things for the museum of science are you employed by them on a regular basis or do you apply for each of these little projects how does that work that you suddenly because you've got like four in a row here listed of things that you've done there are you an employee of theirs now are you like the official builder or or do you apply for each one of these projects separately i get called individually for a project i've worked there long enough and we're looking at 16 17 years i've been doing work with them i see as an independent contractor, they they change their policies. So as an independent contractor, I have my own insurance. They trust me. They know the work that I've done. My schedule is fairly flexible being an independent contractor. So they call up like, look, we got this exhibit coming in. You want us to help us install it? Or we want to change something up. Can you you know, come in and we'll talk design and whatnot? And I, I give them a price and we go from there. A lot of the ones that, since they went to rotating exhibitions, a lot of the work I do, there's install because I'd be an overhire to come in. But because of my situation there, I get calls from the exhibits department, then I get calls from the collections department because I've done work with them independently, and I get calls from the TIFF Nature Preserve to do whatever. The collections call me up and say, hey, can you build this wall to display our elephant tusks? Can you build this display for our narwhal tusks? Can you hang up these animals? Or I had to cut up a giraffe one time that was stored improperly. I mean, just weirdest things <laughs> that come through them. But uh, that's just it. They, they call me, and I don't have to apply for every job, but they'll call me individually for every job. Well, that's, that's really great. And they, they don't come to you necessarily with plans. They come to you with an idea that they want something for this. One thing, or the, like you just said, the elephant tusks. And then they say, can you literally design something and build it? Is that right? Yeah, I, I get both. I, I, actually, I get it where they have an idea, but they don't know how to execute it. They have an idea, uh, or they have like rough plans, and they want me to refine it. Or they come in with fine and say, can you just build it? So I, I, get, I get called for all three. Okay, I got you now. So yeah, so you're you're not only a designer, but you also well, you do this with the with Road Less Travel. Obviously, you're taking plans that an art, a set designer has come up with, and then you are taking them and you are figuring out how to build it into that space. And although I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure set designers are very aware of the space and very aware of the certain dimensions and so on, but you're the one who actually makes it happen within the space. And so now your name has gotten out to all sorts of other places. You're also doing something for the Buffalo Academy of Science Charter School? Yeah, my first story when I told you about the um, the three of us to be the final cut and the one got hired as a teacher. Yes. He has moved on to the Buffalo Academy of Science Charter School and they were asking around several years ago, they're like, hey, do you know somebody who can build? He goes, as a matter of fact, I do. And since then, God, I built them a room to construct robots in, a full library, a STEM bus, and outdoor furniture for teaching. I built them their trebuchet that they that they won the pumpkin chunking competition a couple of years ago. <laughs> Currently, I'm I'm pricing out. They want two. Oh, I've also built them bookstores. I'm building two more bookstores, an inside playground reading nooks, and then reading spaces in their outdoor area at three different schools. I have to ask this question because does this take fine carpentry skills or are these more construction builder skills? Depends on the job. And you can do both. I can do both. The rough carpentry skills and then finishing is what I do most of the time. Like the fine stuff, the real, like detailed carpentry stuff. There are other people who have way more patience than I. They do the you know, the real fine joinery and what. I understand, um, yeah. 
it's also a question of price and time. How much money do they have to spend? Because, you know, if you want to spend a million dollars, I'll polish mahogany all day long for you. That doesn't sound good. I'm sorry about that. You get my gist. Sure, sure. That's time intensive and labor intensive. Absolutely. Especially if you want to do fine woodworking like that, it's, it's very time intensive. But the rough cut, there are ways around that you can still make it look real nice. And it's, it's basically it's exhibit design is what it is. You build it so that it has that fine look to it, but you're not spending... 100 hours, like I said, polishing up mahogany and, and, and that type of thing. Right, because exhibits are, are mostly seen at a little bit of a distance as opposed to something in your home that is right, you know, you, you're living with it, you're right up close to it every minute. These are things that are meant to look good. Frankly, like a, a theater set, they have to look good from a distance of 10, 20, maybe even 30 or longer feet away. And so there's a difference between that and fine carpentry that has to be very detailed. Am I right. correct in that? And do you have a crew? Do you have a, a group of guys that you work with or that are your company? Well, let me answer your first question first. A lot of what I do for the Bustle Museum of Science, I said some is that, that finer work that is just viewed. A lot of it, though, is in the public. It is going to be hands-on. People can play with it. They can walk through it. They can touch it, which means I have to overbuild the heck out of it. Because I don't know if you know anything about the general public, but they're they're destructive. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to a huge degree, they're very destructive. <laughs> They'll ruin something um, in a minute, yeah. Oh, God. I, I designed and built the first uh, play space. And that wasn't play space. It was an early education space. The three-day was Explorations uh, 11 years ago. It was only supposed to be up for five to eight, but it went to 11, pandemic and whatnot. And uh, we just tore it out and put in the new space, Explorations, which was a combination of that, what we kind of want, what I can design. And that went in quick. I mean, the one was a year project. But I did the first space, the Explorations. Peter, honestly, it would have been easier if I handed them hammers the first day when they walked in. They just, <laughs> <laughs> and the parents were worse than the kids. It was, it was, it was bad. Oh, it was man. bad. But uh, when we tore it out, 95% of what I built was still there. So I was pretty happy about that. And to answer your question, no, I'm an indep- uh, I work alone. You work alone. I work alone. Wow. Yeah. If I build something, uh, I'll get whoever I'm working with. If we have to install it, they hold things for me and whatnot. But no, I normally work alone. I design alone. I build alone. If you need bodies to help carry things and that sort of stuff, that's one thing. But the actual construction, the building, the the all of that. You, you're you're a one-man show. Pretty much. Uh, occasionally, if I'm doing things for the museum, they'll have guys there who will, you know, put in putty and sand and whatnot. But I do I do all the building. Well, that's very cool, Lou. Thanks very much. I look forward to the, seeing the set in Little Women now and and sharing a drink with you at the next party, whenever it is. You take care of yourself, Lou. I will talk to you again soon. All right, Peter. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. <laughs> I told you that would be a lot of fun. Lou Iannone, set builder for Roadless Traveled Productions. And now, without further ado, let's talk to Miss Donna Hoke, whose play, full-length play called Little Women Now, is running right now at the Roadless Traveled Theater, 456 Main Street. Here's Donna. just a huge fan of writers. The people who write the words that have helped make my career, it fascinates me. I, we may have talked about it before. I think we have, because I, I definitely asked you if you've ever thought about writing something yourself. Yes, and I have, and I've gotten this far. 
<laughs> and uh, and I actually spent some time writing, trying to write it out as a story because I thought I had a great idea for a story, and I started to write it out sort of in prose, blah blah blah, and it and then I just sort of it just sort of petered out, and I is that is that a pun? No, <laughs> <laughs> and that's the problem. I'm not that clever. <laughs> So, well, I wouldn't give up on the idea. It might just be that it didn't have the proper development. Well, we'll talk about it because of how you got into this to begin with and so on. And, and because the fact that you, you started sort of out of nowhere and now you've got plays produced all over the world, basically, right? Yeah. I mean, do you know how many plays do you have going right now? Um, or is it impossible? I don't have, know? I don't even, I have a couple short plays going right now. I had a reading at SGT last night, which is why I wasn't at rehearsal here. And I still have the couple next door running in Romania where it's been running in rep since 2013 with a break for the pandemic, but they just came back recently. How great. Um, and I have upcoming productions in May and June and July mm -hmm. and August, but I don't think I have currently anything else running at the moment. What's the most, can you say like at, at one time you had five full-length plays running at the same time? I don't think I've ever had five full-length <laughs> plays running at the same time. <laughs> oh, okay. Can you say about four? I've definitely had a lot of short plays running concurrently on a weekend. I don't think I've ever had that many. The full-length plays are much harder to get produced than the short plays. Yeah, and has there been, has there like been a venue that you are particularly proud of? Like, I have a play produced at... David. I was excited to have a play at the Smith because that, that was like because my name got to be up on the, you know, marquee thingy. So that was kind of cool because people saw it. Um, most of them I don't get to go, uh, you know, like sure. so I don't really get to experience like it was cool. I had a, I had a solo show at the Aspen Solo Flights Festival this past summer that Hunter Foster directed and Sarah Stiles from Broadway, um, the Tony nominee from Tootsie mm -hmm. and Hand to God actually starred in. So that was really, really cool. And I got to go out to Aspen for a week. And there was a lot of cool people out there, and we had a good time. Now, I, I assume you're here to, to sit through rehearsal tonight. Mm -hmm. Is this something you like to do? To, do you like sitting in on rehearsals of your plays, or does it make you uncomfortable? It doesn't make or is me there something uncomfortable, in between? but when it comes to the first production of a play, it's really kind of imperative that the playwright is there, because at the very first production, the playwright is the only one who knows what they meant. And, you know, it definitely... I'm willing to accept that what I meant isn't on the page mm -hmm. or that people are interpreting it completely different from what I meant. But the only way that I can course correct is if I'm in the room. And I really depend on the actors and the director to tell me, like, this isn't working. You wrote mm. this. You want us to do this. This is never going to work because of this uh. or, you know, that kind of stuff. And if you're not in the room for that first production, you can't ever make those corrections and you can't right. make a better play and playwrights also just learn just about how to write plays by watching what the designers do what the actors do what the director does because that all has to go into the script I see and so you're trying to make it as foolproof as possible but it's just not possible to do that until you're in the room so I have showed up when I have not been able to be in rehearsal and just kind of been horrified. And, you know, that's on me. I think I've gotten better at that over time. Like, horrified because they're just going in a direction you never expected right. or intended. And you can't really know 
what it's going to look like until you watch it. But it is something you get better at doing. What and about a play that's already been finalized, let's say? You, you've been through the published, process? Once it's published, it's gone. And, and like what most playwrights will do, you know, like famous playwrights who have a lot more control over their process, generally they are hyper-controlling of the first production because that's the one that's going to get reviewed by the New York Times. That's the one that everybody's going to... And then once it's gone and published, they don't worry about it anymore. Mm-hmm. But when it's the one that's going to reflect back on you... You're heavily invested in making sure it's as close to your vision as you wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. But you know, and, knowing within all that that it is collaborative and you're going to have to be adjust and make changes. And, and you feel that with the first play, for example, with the first production of it, you feel like there's still room for editing, adjusting, uh, rewrites, course corrections? Yeah, 100%. I mean, hopefully by the time it gets to production, you're not making major changes. And, mm-hmm. and you know, it's, again, much different in New York where they have weeks and weeks of previews that you could restructure a whole scene or you could take out a whole scene or you could move things around and they know that they have preview time to play with that. We don't have that luxury here. Mm-hmm. So hopefully by the time it's getting to production, we've had several readings. I've gotten notes from Scott. I've gotten notes from the actor we had starting with a table read at my house in December 2018. That's when this whole process started. It was a long time ago. (laughs) So by the time we got here, it was in pretty good shape structurally, but there were a lot of line changes because this didn't make sense and I didn't realize this and the actor's like, but I did it, like whatever. And then at a certain point, because we don't have the luxury of all that time, I have to lock the script, but I'm still making changes. And every time I'll come and see the show, I will probably go home and make changes, but they won't be in this script. So ideally, we like to say that three productions of play is done because then you've watched it in several iterations with different actors. You know, you know that the lines work, whoever's mouth they're in. And then at that point, maybe you're submitting it for, produ- for publication. Because for me, in interpreting a script, in, in performing a script, part of the fun for me is that sense of mystery of putting the puzzle pieces together. And so many times I've used these words when I'm directing, as a matter of fact, I've said, he did this for a reason. This is like this for a reason. Don't don't tell me we're not going to do it this way or we're not going to do it that way because that's what the script says and it's there for a reason. Let's figure out what it is. But that's with a play that's been published and been produced several times. So I'm sure I have the greatest respect for that written word. With a new play that's only been that's being produced for the first time, that would not be as sacrosanct because you yourself are making adjustments and and learning on the fly, basically. Well, I will say that everything in there is there for a reason. My reason might not be clear. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'll have a discussion with the actors or they'll say, I just don't understand... Blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, well, what, what would feel like the right thing to say there? Like, mm-hmm. what is what is not feeling like it's getting you from there to there? Or or Doug, you know, Doug has been wonderful because I don't know if he's had someone in his face, maybe Randy, when they've worked on stuff, you know, saying, here are my notes and let, your notes. But but he's been super collaborative and it's been, I think, a great process. I hope he would agree. Um, and he has been wonderful in bringing so much more humor to it, even than I intended. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's been great. I think we've had a good collaborative process all the way around um, with the actors. And I know everybody in the cast pretty much, too, so I think they're not maybe as uncomfortable having me in the room as you know actors I don't know at all might. Yes. But correct me if I'm wrong, because I, when I was teaching, I would always tell, especially with poetry, for example, which I know, which I know you've also written, uh, I, I tell them that everything is there for a reason. Uh, the comma, that comma, th- that old story about I spent all morning right, right. Inside, <laughs> you know, to put in a comma and then I spent all afternoon taking it out. The, the writer decided... That this is this needs a colon. This needs a comma. This needs whatever, and 
let, we need to figure out what that is. But you have you, you have healthy that, respect right? for writers, Peter. I'm just saying it's not <laughs> universal. <laughs> have you gotten to the point where, because you've you've received numerous awards, you as I said, you've been plays all over the country, all over the world. What is it? Five different continents now, and you've gotten tremendous number of art voice. I have three Arties. Three Artie Awards, and and even a, a Best Writer. You were named Best Writer by Art Voice a, a few years ago. Do you ever feel like you're getting it down? Like you're really, I'm getting the hang of this? Or or is it is everything, is it always a struggle? It's always a struggle. I definitely have improved in some areas. Like, um, you know, like at the reading last night, I had not heard that play in a long time. And there were actually times to myself where I'd go, oh, did I just leave that hanging there? And then no, like there was later something else that picked it up or like I, made, I took care of it. So it was interesting to be watching my own play that I was familiar with, but not familiar with enough to know what was coming every second. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I was surprised by the way that I picked something back up. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's never easy. I don't think it's ever easy. And you never finish a play and say, I think that's done. No, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, the, the comma thing you've heard, you know, they're never done. They're just abandoned. Yes. You know, you get more excited about something else and you just don't really go back to that one. Or maybe I sent it out to a million places and it never got any attention. So it never got any development. So I never got to dig back into it and do the rewrites that it needs. So it's still kind of just not a great play, but maybe it could be, but nobody was ever interested in it enough to take it to the next level. And, and what do you look forward to when you say getting development? I know that playwrights like to hear their words come through actors and you'd like to hear what it sounds like. That's just one of the steps. Do you also sit in a room with other, other writers and critique each other and offer that sort of help? Yeah, I'm in several writers groups and usually I don't bring the play to the writers group till it's gone through several other passes of things. Um, I have a person, like a friend who's been reading stuff for years and he's my first go-to, like he does it for like $40 and then we get on the phone and we talk it through. Then I make those adjustments. Then I will usually invite people over to table read it, which is what happened with Little Women in 2018. And then I will get feedback from them and whoever else has listened in. Then I will send it to Sabrina, my daughter, and I will have her read it. And then maybe after I've made those adjustments, I will take it to my writer's group. I see. It goes through several evolutions, several stages of evolution, before it reaches even a, a point where you want actors to, to read it out loud. You know, you go to the theater, you see the play, and I don't know if you appreciate the number of iterations that a script goes through before even, as we said, even reaching the point where let's hear people say it out loud. Mm -hmm. I wish people would know more about that, that that's something that's really not just fascinating, but is important to know. I give them a greater appreciation of this whole business. Yeah, people, people have no idea. And especially people who don't go to theater have no idea. My brother came to my very first play, The Couple Next Door, and said, did you write all the things they were saying? <laughs> As opposed to, for example, you wrote some things and then people ad-libbed their way through right, it? Right, okay. right. But he had never been to theater before. Mm -hmm. And when people came to Once in My Lifetime at Smith, you know, the football play, uh, we had a lot of people who had clearly never been in a theater before. And the moment at which the Bills win the Super Bowl, yes. the whole cast freezes. I don't know if you saw that show, but the whole cast freezes, like, because it can't possibly be true, right? Yes, and, yes. you know, obviously a very theatrical <laughs> moment that anybody in theater would recognize. 
And someone in the audience literally yelled out, they won. Like, I think he really thought they needed to know that. <laughs> because, <laughs> right, because they, they were just frozen in right. the impossibility of it. Right. And it, it was a funny moment. And people in theater recognize that that's what it was. But this person literally thought they needed to know that, that the goal was good <laughs> and that meant they won. <laughs> so, yeah, I think people who, who aren't familiar, I mean, even, you know, being a playwright, you write that first play. And I can remember Scott with the couple next door saying, do you want to see your set? And it was so exciting. Like mm -hmm. somebody, you know, designed this set, but you don't really realize how much goes into that until yes. you're watching it come together. And, you know, you're realizing, well, this is there because that's in my script and, you know, all of that stuff. Even some, something like blocking. Everything is planned. Yeah. Every step, every move is planned. Every slap is but planned. But we work so hard to make it look unplanned right. <laughs> that you just do your job too well. I guess That's I just want people to appre <laughs> appreciate it. it let, let's go back a little bit to how you got into this to begin with, if you, if you don't mind. First of all, you are a local girl, are you not? Originally, yes. Yeah, and then you, you, and I then know moved you went away, to New York City came for back. a while. Mm -hmm. But uh, so you were from Chictawaga? I went to Depew High School. I was born in Chictawaga. We moved. I went to Depew, Depew High School. Depew High School, okay. Which two cast members, Ricky and Brittany, also went to Depew High School. Is that right? Many years after I did, but How but yes. interesting. And were you always interested? Were you a good English student? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I was definitely a good English student, and for reasons not worth going into, I went to Fredonia for a degree in speech pathology and audiology. Well, you can't just say <laughs> that and then not tell me what. Was, I, there, was there somebody in your family who needed, who had had speech therapy, and you said, hey, that's interesting. I would, it, it didn't come out of nowhere. Not, Donna, it couldn't have. I'm trying to think. <laughs> I think it came from, I was interested in deafness and sign language, and I thought that had something to do with it. And at that time in Fredonia, if you went for that degree, you went through all the coursework, and at the very end, you did student teaching. The coursework was fascinating. If I were not a writer, I think I would be involved in medicine somehow. I find it really interesting. And then you had to student teach, and I was terrible <laughs> at student teaching. I hated it. I hated it so much. Like, it just gave you that dread every morning, like, I have to go to this classroom. But I had these individual clients, and I had four deaf students who I adored, but it was very evident to my supervisor that I was not having a good time. <laughs> And she called me in and said, I don't know what we're going to... Meanwhile, this is my last semester now. Like, this is oh when they gosh. throw you into this situation and tell you that this is what you're doing. And they also don't tell you that there are jobs in hospital settings and other places that you don't have to work with students. They don't even tell you that. Mm -hmm. And I know now that they've changed it because my nephew and his wife both went through the same program. Now they have you in a classroom your very first year. So I'd like to think I had something to do with that, oh. but I'm sure I didn't. It was many years later. Anyway, she said, I don't know what we're going to do about this. And I said, well, you don't have to worry about it because I'm coming back next semester to get a degree in English after I graduate. Uh. And she said, OK, then I'll give you a C. So she passed me because I wasn't going to inflict right. myself. It, it was a, a mercy grade. <laughs> on students. As long as you promise us you'll never do this in a classroom. OK. <laughs> so I went back and I got an English degree in two semesters, like 21 credits of English a semester, which was a lot of that, writing. That is a lot of and, and a lot of reading, I'm sure. And a lot of creative writing. And I, you know, showed my family things. And I, I was a very, I didn't like the, the scrutiny of that. Like, what does this mean? What does this mean about you? Like, it just made me very uncomfortable. I mean, writers are introverts. I think it takes a long time to feel comfortable putting things out there and, letting people interpret it and not caring what they're interpreting, hmm. you know, because it's personal. So 
I think that kind of turned me off of any kind of creative writing if it was going to get that kind of scrutiny from people. Oh. And so I went into journalism. That was one of my questions, because how did you go from one thing to the next? So from English, where you're doing creative writing, to something that is more fact-based. Yeah, I don't know that I ever thought I'm going to be a novelist or anything like that, mm -hmm. but those creative writing classes that I took just turned me off to the the scrutiny. Mm -hmm. I just And I figured in journalism, nobody can really do that. Because the scrutiny always felt personal? Yeah. Like, you know, they're reading something, well, you must have had a bad childhood right, if you're writing right. about this. Right. Interesting. Is, has anybody ever approached you in your plays like that? Is it, well, because Well, because when you the couple next this, door ran, um, there was a certain reviewer oh, who made comments about, I don't know how much this is from her personal experience, but, you know, at this point in my life, I'm like, oh, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't care anymore. But, but then... You know, I went to college when I was 17. I was young. It was, you know, it just was not something I, I felt like I could invite. Mm -hmm. Not that I ever had aspirations to be like, you know, a poet or a novelist or anything. So I went into journalism and that's what I ended up doing. And is that how you got down to New York City? We went yeah. to the mecca of publishing and so on? Right. And what did you do down there? Or with whom did you do it? Maybe My first say. job was with a company called Grala Publications, which had a whole suite of trade magazines, like 15, and if they had a promising candidate come through the door, they hired you as a trainee, and you would go around to each magazine for two weeks, and as soon as one of them had an opening for assistant editor, they could say, we want this trainee, and they would just slide you in and hire another trainee. It was a great, great setup. So there I worked for a jewelry magazine and then a meeting planning magazine, so I got to travel a ton, and it was great. So I think when I left meeting news, I was a senior associate editor, maybe, and I've always kind of had the idea that I tell my kids, you should always have your resume in the place you'd rather work because there's mm -hmm. somewhere else you'd rather work, wherever mm. that might be. <laughs> <laughs> so I had on a whim sent a resume to Soap Opera Digest like two years prior and they ended up calling me and I went and I interviewed and I just thought that would be the most fun place to work in the whole world. I watched soaps all through college and they hired me and that's where I yeah, worked. Yeah, that sounds like a blast. It was a total blast. We got to go to California to the awards. I mean, soaps were flush in those days. Yeah. So there were a lot of perks. We got to go on set. So it was a lot of fun. I like the way a soap can tell a story, and, and obviously everyone else does too because everything's a soap now, right? That's for sure. Um, you know, the continuation of things all started there, but that's a whole different conversation. But I worked for, there for seven years until I had my daughters. And, and then they were premature, so I was home with them, but also because I had been on bed rest before I had them, I had used up all my family leave time. So six weeks after I had them, my boss was like, we want you back. <laughs> I was like, I cannot leave these tiny, <laughs> tiny babies. Um, and there was babies. no working from home in those days? No, there was no working from home in those days. There yeah. was freelancing. I mean, you could freelance, but there was no remote work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I had to leave. I left, and that's when I started freelancing. So then somehow you came back to Buffalo at some point because you just loved it here so much? Well, um, <laughs> not exactly. Okay. I mean, I left here when I was 17 to go to college. Wow. And so I was a freshman in college at 17. So while I was in New Jersey, I mean, I got married. I had four children while I was there. Is this the two sets of twins? Yes. We should tell people that, too. Yes. <laughs> on top of everything else that you do, you also have two sets of twins. Yes. Um, and then I got divorced. So... <laughs> But what happened before I got divorced is relevant because my ex-husband started to get involved in community theater. Mm. And I had never gone to theater as a kid. I think I saw like Annie and Beatlemania at Shays, and that was probably it. You know, my high school didn't really do theater. I think once they did Blythe Spirit, and that was it for my theater going of any kind. 
So when my ex-husband, who thought, you know, he might want to be an actor, started getting involved in community theater, I started to go and I started to bring the kids and I liked it. Hmm. So when we got in, you know, don't become a playwright when you actually live in New Jersey, right next to New York City. No, wait till you move back to Buffalo. <laughs> so we got divorced. I moved back here. I saw an article in the news about Road Less Traveled. Yes. And the article, I think, was in 2004, and it talked about how their mission was world premieres by Western New York playwrights and getting younger people into theater, both which seemed to be admirable missions. So I wanted to support that, and I bought a subscription. And at that time, all four shows in the season were world premieres by Western New York playwrights. And somewhere in the program, they had about the workshop that they used to have. And somewhere in my head, I was like, hey, I should write a play because they're producing all of them. You know, there were like four people in the workshop and four plays in the season. And it had never occurred to you before to write a play? I didn't know about plays. Like, Fredonia has this huge theater department. I just didn't know about it. How interesting. I mean, I had tried prose, poetry, just I didn't know plays at all. I don't remember reading them in school, just nothing. And so I started writing one, and it was like... Do you understand how crazy this is? You weren't even brought up with theater. You weren't brought up reading plays. You, you didn't read plays in high school. You, you, you didn't go to theater to school for theater. And all of a sudden, and you tried creative writing, and then you said, sort of set that aside. And all of a sudden, you say, you got interested in theater, and you say, I think I can do that. Yeah, I mean, it was just wow. kind of this combination of, like, they're doing all of them, and I feel like I can do what I'm watching, so let me try that, and so I did, and apparently a lot of other people had the same idea, because the workshop kind of exploded that year, it went from four people to ten people, and at the same time, Scott decided I can't really sustain a theater on only world premieres by <laughs> Western New York playwrights, because in all fairness, sometimes I went and there were maybe eight people there. Yeah. So I wrote the play, it got accepted, but the, the biggest thing is that when I started writing it, it was just kind of like all the bells and whistles went off, like, oh, this is the kind of creative writing I can do. And, you know, a, a lot of maturity since I was younger probably happened in, in the meantime, and I just loved it. So I wrote that one, and I wrote another one. But were you part of the new playwriting uh, workshop at that yeah. time? Yeah. I mean, they didn't choose my play. That year, Scott had then decided just one mm -hmm. a year. Mm -hmm. So the next year, I wrote another one and got in, and John Elston did not like it. <laughs> and he <laughs> let me know he did not like it. And I said, well, I have this other one that I wrote. So I gave him that one, and he said, I really like this, and I would advocate for this. And that was The Couple the Next couple Door. The Couple Next Door, yep. Which, um, so my, that was actually my third play. The first two have never been produced, but that was my third play and my very first production of anything, because I didn't even know about 10-minute plays yet at that point. Okay. So that's what Did they you, produced. Do you, look, do you look back on the first two that were never produced and say, these still have potential? I, I would like to revise or rethink? Because you've grown. Mm -hmm. Everybody does. But certainly you have grown as a writer. Do you look back at those and say, I still think this idea has potential? The first one I've cut down to an hour one act. Okay. Um, so sometimes I send it out, but I have other ones, so not always. The second one... Half the people in the workshop liked it. I think it read more like a novel. It was it was hmm. more literary. It was a finalist for something. But again, I have other things to send out now. So hmm. I don't send out something that probably isn't as good as other things that I have. I see. All right. Well, that makes sense. I just was wondering if they're like children and you never want to abandon them and you feel like there's still hope for this one 
child. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think there is really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that they're horrid. You know, it's the kind of thing. Like, if I were, ever got super famous, they'd go dig back and like, you know, analyze it for like early themes or something. But I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, while we're discussing playwright Donna Hoke here yeah. in the 25th century, like I saw a lunch hour play of Tennessee Williams at the Shaw Festival, like an hour long thing. It's yes. like not great, but like you see his early you see the roots? stuff. Yeah. <laughs> So people get off on that sort of thing. Yeah. Another quote you had was, uh, you like to focus up on how people feel when they're confronted with a difficult situation. And where do you find inspiration for those difficult situations? Are there things that you see and, and you say, I wonder what if this happened with that? And is that what Yeah, you... I don't feel like I'm the what if person. Mm -hmm. I know that's that's definitely something that people do. I mean, I go through areas of interest, like brilliant works of art, which... Um, is my most critically successful play, though it has never been produced, really just came with an obsession with how people have the ability to compartmentalize. You know, like they can just set something aside and not think about it, and it's not gnawing at them, you know, that kind of thing, and that's that's where that came from. So it, it, sometimes it's just like what causes an uncomfortable feeling. And, then, and, and again, where does that come from? Is it an observation that you make of somebody and you go, oh. I think once you start thinking in ideas, that stuff comes more readily you know like the the play reading I had last night was about a guy who had this really abusive girlfriend and he was having trouble breaking up with her and he had this best friend and ultimately decided that he really had feelings for the best friend he's like 35 had never had feelings for another man in his entire life mm -hmm. they took it by surprise and this was like from a little advice column and, you know, this happened to somebody and he was like, and nobody will believe that I really have feelings for him because I'm 35 years old and, you know, whatever. And to happened. me, that was fascinating, you know, that his sister was saying, no, it's because you were in this abusive relationship and this is just a reaction to it. And, and like that was a play that literally I set aside the play I was currently writing, took two weeks and wrote that play and went back to the other one because it was that much of like, I need to write that play. Oh, how interesting. You were felt that, that motivated and you needed to get it down on paper. Well, yeah. On paper. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on the computer page. Yeah. You needed to get it. Oh, that's very interesting because I, I've often wondered where ideas come from and, and how, how they germinate and grow into something. But you said in, in that case, let's just talk for about in that case, did you have the ending? Um, well, I knew that and they I were going to, I knew was, they would but... end up together, mm -hmm. but I didn't know how quite I would get there. And I added plants and like, I mean, it got to be a whole comedy actually. Um, it ended up being a comedic play, even mm -hmm. though it's a very serious subject. I think all writers have some kind of idea file, you know, and like for me at least. When Are you a note taker? Do you write so, you, something? I email, my, you, email myself email yourself? something. Yeah. Oh, I just saw this and here's an idea for a play. Here's an idea. Right now, I have so many things that I want to get to that I don't think I'm really putting anything in a file at the moment. But generally, what I would do when I had like, oh, like, OK, this is going to be a slow month. I should probably start a play. Then I would go look at the idea file and see which one had the most notes under it yeah, yeah. that I could start with. And do you do you set aside time for yourself to do this? Because you're still working another as mm -hmm. they say, real job. Mm -hmm. Do you set aside time for yourself on a weekly basis or a daily basis that I'm, I'm going to sit down and take time for myself to be, to be a playwright, 
for an hour a day or two hours a day? Or, or is it just more of a, a feeling I need to sit down and do something? It mostly has to do with time. Like like my spree schedule kind of, you know, when, when it's not a home issue, I have slower months of the year. But for me, the thing I always preach is that even if you're not writing, you have to be a playwright every day. So I am a playwright every day. I mean, I have groups I check in with. I'm reading other people's things. I'm, I'm reading the dramatist. I'm interacting with the dramatist guild. I'm talking to my agent. I'm always doing something. I think when you start to let those things go, mm-hmm. suddenly things become something you used to do, you know, because you're not living that identity every day. Yeah, yeah. And you are connected to all these other, like you just said, the Dramatist Guild of America. Mm-hmm. How does how do things like that happen where you become their representative or, or the International Center for Women Playwrights? How do, how do I mean, the things? International Center for Women Playwrights, you just join. I mean, that's not really a thing. That started in Buffalo, though, by the way. Really? Yeah. Kathleen Betzko and sure. um, Anna K. France, they yep. were founding members. The minute I wrote a play, I joined the Dramatist Guild. Mm-hmm. Because if you're a playwright, that's what you do. Like, mm-hmm. if you're serious about playwriting, you're going to join the Dramatist Guild. So I and did. And what does that do for you? What I like to say about the Dramatist Guild is it's not what it does for you. It's what it has already done for you. Like, a lot of people have the thing, like, why should I join that? What are they going to do for me? It's like, it's what they've already done for you. Like, every contract you sign is because they have fought for all the rights in that contract. My right to be in the rehearsal room is because the Dramatist Guild has fought for that to be included in contracts that the, the playwright is allowed in the rehearsal room. Wow. Just all that kind of stuff. And um, I just believed in everything they were doing, and I kind of pitched myself as a rep to them because we didn't have one here Mm -hmm. and we had because of scott a playwriting community and so they came to buffalo to meet me and to have an event and after that they took me on and then i became the state rep and i was on council for a while and now i am the ambassador just for western new york so it's like rep light Um, but i'm also the chair of the best practices committee which is something i feel strongly about and i'm a huge advocate for regional playwrights because the dramatist guild traditionally has been very new york centric and there are so many regional playwrights who are all connected now because we have the power of the internet Mm -hmm. and what people don't understand about regional playwrights is that they are every bit as talented as the playwrights in new york but we it's harder to get opportunity without a series of insanely fluky things that might happen. You know, like after the couple next door, the number of people who said to me, did anyone pick it up? It's not really how it happens. Like for someone to pick it up, they have to know what happened, right, right. <laughs> you know? And, that and I do have a question about that, but how, because how do you, does being part of the Dramatist Guild, does that help you get the word out? Does that help you promote? No? Not at all. Not at all. How do you get, promo- well, how do you promote your work around, how do you get plays produced all over the world? Um, a lot of submission, cold submission, following opportunities. I mean, I think what people don't get is that, you know, like Broadway is the pinnacle for choreographers, dancers, actors, yeah. whatever. But for playwrights, it's because somebody with enough money decided to put you there. Sure. You know, if I had billions, I could be on Broadway. That's it's self-production at the highest level. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of like that throughout New York. But if you have that New York production, you get the New York Times review and hopefully that leads to other things. For regional playwrights, again, it just takes a fluky series of coincidences for that to happen and it, and the chances are slim. So we all kind of have a mindset of, you know, we, like I, for me, because especially because I got into it so late, I am just happy to be consistently working, mm-hmm. you know, and, and things lead to things. They're probably never going to lead to that thing, but to be consistently working, having started so late, just, you know, that, that is gratifying to me. It, it should be. I think I got off track. Um, <laughs> well, that's, well, do, do you, oh, how did you get the work out there? So after the couple next door, I kind of went on a mission. Like, what do you do now? And I got the Dramatist Guild resource book, and I sent the couple next door to as many theaters as I could find that I felt like it was right for. 
And I got a Are there agents that help, as, as there are with book publishing, that there, there are literary agents? Are there agents who help promote your work? Theatrical agents primarily handle the contracts. I see. That, that's really what my agent does. I mean, I might say, can you send this to so-and-so? Uh, but mostly I send everything myself. They're and not out she there is the one like, okay, this theater's interested. Can you do the contract? And then she negotiates the mm -hmm. contract. She and does do have relationships and she, you know, with publishers and things like that. But And where do you get the plays that you said you, you, you spend time reading other people's plays and offering criticism and so on? Do those come to you through the Dram Dramatist Guild? I am on the faculty of plays in progress at the Dramatist Guild, so I sometimes see. they send. Um, I have a little blurb on my website, and enough people find that that ask me to, you know, read their plays and give feedback. Um, I don't really advertise it, but if people see that little blurb, sometimes they will write to me and ask. Mm -hmm. Have you ever read a play and thought, "Oh my God, this is terrific! I should give it to Scott or somebody"? Have you ever, or do they often, or most times, come to you in a very Clearly unfinished. Uh, People who mold. hire me for feedback usually more that I, I have sent Scott plays over the years that I thought were right for Road Less Traveled. I also read for a lot of contests um, and sometimes come across plays that way. That way, there was one that I sent him that actually is the only person I know who ever had a fluky series of circumstances, and he's probably going to be on Broadway in the fall. And I did send Scott that one because I thought it was perfect for Road Less Traveled. Um, maybe after it's on Broadway, he'll do it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, reading, reading for contests, you really get a good sense of like what people are writing and, and then something can really stand out like, oh, wow, this is a really good play. Well, we need to talk about Little Women now, but it, I would be remiss if we didn't talk briefly about the fact that you design crossword puzzles. <laughs> and, the, and by the way, I don't know if I spoke to you after I saw the crossword play. I think you I, did. I don't know if I did or not. That was delightful. I had to see it on, online, ladies and gentlemen, because this oh, it's was so much better now. This was during the pandemic. That's the one I took to Aspen, and we like Hunter and Sarah and I just really did a debrief when we got back, and I rewrote it and we read it online again together. And that's the one that's got three productions coming up this summer. That's the one. I, I was going to ask that. I saw one of the pictures. It probably was on your website. The girl who I saw. I had just seen on Showtime uh, in Sarah in Billions. In, in Billions, yeah, yeah. she's an actor on, on Billions. So that's that's the one. But the one I saw was an online thing where, where it was even more amazing to me because it's, although I I knew that she had to have had <laughs> cheat sheets all over the room and so on, but it's so clever and it's so demanding of an actor. And I think that young lady did it without a ton of. Rehearsal oh, time. I mean, it was she did a lot of work on her own because we were rehearsing with her on Zoom because it was still during the pandemic. And then all of a sudden, one day she was there uh -huh. and we were like, whoa. And I think she was just drilling herself. Could you just quickly explain the premise of the of the play? I would do it, but I, will, I won't do yeah. it justice. So you have a puzzle maker who comes out um, and I wrote it to be any gender. This is a one woman show. Um, or one person because it can be any gendered person. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like a TED talk where they come out and teach the audience how to make a crossword puzzle, but in doing so, end up telling a story and kind of, you know, empowering themselves. A story about her own right. situation, her yeah. own yeah. life. Yeah, it's, I, I really, really enjoyed it. Although the whole time I'm watching it, I'm thinking, oh my God, there's so much going on. And then she's <laughs> crossing things out and she's putting this letter in. And, and I thought it was so clever. So let's talk for a second about how and why you're designing crossword puzzles and how that in any way connects to 
playwriting. It probably doesn't. It, well, except for that play. I, I've had two moments of collision with crosswords and playwriting. One is this play, mm -hmm. um, and the other was I wrote a little short play called Two Puzzles Walk Into a Bar, which <laughs> is about a crossword and a Sudoku vying for the attention of the pencil at the end of the bar. And I had tried to send it to Will Shorts to do it at the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament, but he didn't like it. But then I forgot how it got to the guy who runs the Ithaca Crossword Puzzle Tournament, and he was kind of desperate for entertainment, so we tried it. And then he wrote to me and said, this went over like gangbusters. Oh, my gosh, Will has to do it. I'm like, I asked him to do it, and he doesn't want it. So then I got a friend who's on my crossword constructors list to send it to him. And the next thing you know, literally three days later, I'm flying to Connecticut. He's cast actors out of the contestants. They did costumes. They did the whole thing. And we presented it at the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament. Oh um, and Will said, do you want to be a judge for the tournament or do you want to be a contestant and do the puzzles? I said, I'll be a judge. So I got to sit upstairs with all like the famous crossword constructors, <laughs> which was really cool. And funny story is that the editor of the Wall Street Journal puzzle, Mike Shank, figures into how I got into crossword puzzles. So I will circle back to that. And Will Shorts is the New York Times crossword editor. Yeah. Okay, go and ahead. And the NPR, uh, I forget what it's called, the thing he does on NPR. So it goes back to when I left Soap Opera Digest mm -hmm. after I had my daughters and computers were just coming out and I got my first PC. So this is 1995. And we were in a computer store and I bought some shovelware, like cheap software yep. to make crossword puzzles. And again, it comes back to that combination of ignorance and arrogance, like ignorance, I can do this, and arrogance to tell someone else <laughs> I, I can do it. <laughs> so I bought that, and I told, um, I had previously was always like the go-to, fill this page with something fun at Soap Opera Digest, because I love puzzles and games, so I would come up with some silly thing. And so when I got this, I said to them, and I had hired the crossword puzzle person, who did the crossword puzzle, and her name was Jennifer Shank, and she was Mike's uh. sister. So I said, I can do the puzzle now. I have this software. And my boss was like, okay, and they fired Jennifer Shank. <laughs> so when I met Mike, I told him this story, and he's like, she always wondered what happened. We're talking now 25 oh years later. Oh, my goodness, yes, yes. <laughs> because she <laughs> She's just, still holding a grudge, by the way. She just got fired. And meanwhile, I knew nothing, nothing. I had this software, and, you know, my mom but had... I, I, I was teaching in those days. I had a, on an Apple IIc, there was a crossword puzzle thing, and I used it to create crossword puzzles for kids for vo learning like vocabulary. Like the crisscrossy thing. And they were just silly. Not I mean, a real crossword. No, puzzle. not a real right. crossword puzzle. We're talking about a real crossword puzzle, which is so much more advanced. Which and, I didn't and, realize because, <laughs> Peter, I had never done one. I see. But you got the but game But my now. mother, my mother, you know, had tried. Oh, they're so fun. Try it now. Yeah, I don't want to try it. Like, I just would never do it. Never do it. So I'd never done one in my life. And here I am now making them for Soap Opera Digest. So oh. <laughs> I kind of learned, you know, how to do it. And I had some real clunkers in the beginning, but then I was like, okay, I need to figure out what I'm doing. So I wrote a letter to Will Shorts and said, I'm trying to learn how to make crossword puzzles. Can you offer any resources? You know, and he wrote back some days of snail mail. He wrote back to me <laughs> and said, try this, this, and this. And then like somewhere in there it clicked and I got it. I got the hang of it. I understood what I needed to do. And I started making them like crazy. And I started sending them to LA Times and to Games Magazine and Simon and & Schuster. And I would say, Will Short suggested that I write <laughs> to you. And I got all these puzzles published from these places. Oh, um, because cool. once I caught on to it, I got it. I really got it. And I, I was very prolific with puzzles at that time. And then... Um, is there, so you caught on. Is, would you say there's a trick to it? 
there's puzzle there's, sense. There's just a there's puzzle, puzzle sense. sense, you know, because my mom who did them her whole life, so I try and get her I to imagine. help me, and like she didn't get the puzzle sense. She mm -hmm. could do them, but she couldn't create them. You mm. know, it's like okay. it's a weird thing. So I was very, very prolific at that time. Had them in the t all the all the newspapers and everything, and then. I'm still making the Soap Opera Digest puzzle to this day, one every week. So I've been wow. making it since my daughters were born, so 27 years. I am That's my claim to fame. Like, the only person in the whole world who can say I've made 2,000 crossword puzzles, more than that. And is there software soap now that is, that is helpful? Yeah, there's better software now. It's, it's still very much the same process. Mm -hmm. I actually used to combine two different shovelware programs because one did one thing very well and one did, so I used to, like, transfer it all over. I used to have to fax them in. It's all much easier now. Then... I started writing plays, and you can't, like, you know, serve two masters, <laughs> so... You're I, serving more than two masters, my friend. So I still make the digest puzzle, but then when I created my website, which I created because of the children's book that I wrote, and it ended up not even being for that, but I had one little page about the crossword puzzles put on there, and I figured if I got enough business from that to pay for the website, it would be worth it. And I have gotten more than that. And the pandemic just really made it go crazy. I have four puzzles on my on my desk right now that what? need to be done by May 1st. Oh, my gosh. Because during the pandemic, I think everyone started doing puzzles. And then they think, oh, this would make a good gift for so-and-so. And then they Google it. And there's only like two people who do it, like me and one other person. And so I've been getting a lot of puzzle business. Is the crossword play still available on YouTube? I think that's where I saw I it. I think that version is, but it is very different now. Mm -hmm. Better. It's still, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. If you if you get a chance to look it up on YouTube, it's called the, the crossword play. Well, then it, it was called Esmeranda's Gift. Now it's oh, called the Esmeranda's crossword play. Esmeranda's Gift. That's right. Yeah. That's what we need to know. Esmeranda's Gift on YouTube. Yeah. Okay, one last question about crosswords. When you get a crossword published in the New York Times, and it says edited by Will Shorts, what the heck does he actually do? He rewrites all the clues. <laughs> Does he really? <laughs> about half of them. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. He's very upfront about the fact that he rewrites about half of them. Oh, and do you do you see them rewritten and go, yeah, that's better, or do you? Why did he change that? <laughs> um, a little of both, I think. Sometimes he's doing it because you know maybe there was something very similar, a similar clue the day before. Sometimes he's just trying to um, lessen the skill level because he wants it for a Wednesday instead uh, of a Tuesday, or mm -hmm. you know heighten the skill level. I mean, there, there's a lot of different reasons why. Okay, we have to talk about Little Women now. Okay, because I have a million <laughs> questions about that. But the first question, of course, is. Is this your first adaptation, or do you even consider this an adaptation? It's definitely an adaptation. It's not my first. I first <clears> adapted <throat> a Chris Crutcher novel, a YA novel called Meet Me at the Gate, Marcus, at the Gates, Marcus James, and that was because I wanted to write a YA play, but didn't feel like I would be good at coming up with a YA idea. So I'm I like, see. let me adapt one. And he was a novelist my daughters <laughs> really loved in high school. So I emailed him and he kind of gave me carte blanche to adapt anything of his I wanted. There's another one I still want to do. It just, it's on my project list. Yeah. And then Phil Ferrugia actually produced it at his high school. So that was the world premiere of it. And it was published oh, um, by Youth Plays. And then Youth Plays said, we have a hole in our catalog where Anne of Green Gables should be. <laughs> and will you write an adaptation of it? Because there are a lot of them out there, but Youth Plays doesn't have one, and I guess they were being asked. So I said, yeah, I would love to. So I wrote that, and that was a ton of fun, and it just was published, and it just had its first high school production last weekend. I mean, it's weird with the school market, because you don't see it or go. They just send you pictures, and you hope it went well. <laughs> but it's kind of freeing, too. <laughs> like, I don't have to worry about it. Right. So that was really cool. And so then Little Women was my third one. And first of all, do you consider it an adaptation, 
a modernization? How would you it's, characterize it's a it? It's contemporary adaptation. I mean, it's definitely an ad adaptation. I mean, if people will recognize the you story, one hundred percent recognize the, the story and the characters and the personalities. Mm -hmm. So, why Little Women? Well, Scott had been doing. I hadn't had a production at Rolest Travel since two thousand fifteen. And I saw that he was doing a lot of adaptations. And so I said, like, what can I write? Can I write an adaptation for you? Like, would that be something that would be interest you? Mm -hmm. And he's like, sure, pitch me some stuff. So I pitched him Little Women in a contemporary adaptation. And he was interested because the 100th anniversary was coming up. Marion DeForest, who went to Buff Sem, had written yes. a very early adaptation yes. of Little Women. And he thought there might be a good tie in there. And so... He said, go ahead and do it. So I did it. I had the reading at my house. I invited Katie Mallinson, the literary manager. She really liked what they did, the actors did with it, and told Scott. And then Scott said, come in and read it for me. So mm -hmm. that was March 2019. We had the cast come and read it for him. He rehired all of them except one to do it, like from the people who read at my house. So you're seeing a cast who's been with this show since the very beginning. So all of them have really been committed for a long time, which just means the world to me because they're fabulous. And oh, I really wanted true. them all, which is why I had them in my living room. Oh. So then it was originally scheduled for November 2020. Then it was you know moved to November 2021. We really wanted it to be the holiday show because the Christmas sure, stuff sure. and family and all of that. But because Hand of God was still on stage when they came back, they had to finish up with that, so they pushed it to the spring. Right. So how is this different, aside from the fact that it's, it's, it's a modern update of it? Is the language... Yeah, what's different about this is it is not a period piece. It is those personalities and what those personalities would look like in today's world. This is such an intuitive cast of actors. I mean, Doug said, you know, early in the process, like, wow, this cast is just great. You know, like, I mean, they, they have read it many times before we showed up, but it's just a really intuitive cast of actors with great chemistry. And then that's really gratifying because then they elevate it beyond what you even that was my thought next question. it could be, you know, yes. be, like you thought it was going to be this and they just made it this because, oh. you know, I'm like, oh, this is funny. But then when they're doing it, it's hilarious. And that's what's so cool about theater because it's so collaborative. It's not just the script. The script is here and then everyone else is filling it in. It and I think, really is, yeah. you know, and that's what's really cool as a playwright. Like, you know, if you want to control everything, you need to be a novelist, mm -hmm. but then you don't get, you don't get theater, yes. you know, so. Oh, you know what? We should mention the cast. Can we do them off the top of your head? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so Doug Wyand is directing okay. and he's been fabulous. Joe is played by Alexandria Watts. Alexandria, yes. Lori is played by Jake Hayes. Mm -hmm. Meg is played by Brittany Bassett. Beth is played by Heather Javasi. Amy is played by Sabrina Kowati. And John Brooke is played by Ricky Needham. And Mom is played by Lisa Vetrano. Lisa Vetrano. Yeah, I think you've got them all in there. They're all so they're all so good, and Doug has just been great, too. It's been, it's been great. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, so, Donna Hoke, I think I've covered everything. <laughs> Holy cow, I, time just flew by. And I talk fast, so... It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Peter. Again, <laughs> you know, and maybe next year there'll be something else coming up that we can uh, talk about that. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Yes, that's right, because once you start cutting, believe me, you're going to have to go all summer, and then, then you're going to be sorry because... Oh, never mind. That's our friend Donna Hoke. The playwright Donna Hoke, whose play, Little Women Now, is running right now. Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, and Sunday afternoons. Go to roadlesstraveledproductions.org to get your tickets.
Oh, there it is again. Oh, and now we've had a little bass. Well, this sounds a little kinky. Yes, what this is, is this sort of a, uh, sort of a preview of what's coming this summer. Uh, that's enough of that. That's enough. Actually, that's, that's more than enough. Anyway, uh, yeah, I've got another special project coming on, so that calls for some, uh, eh, some special music for the project. Uh, let's see how that plays out as the weeks go by. Because it's only, oh, well, it's, uh, it's only April. Actually, it's going to be May this week, so stay tuned for that. Weather's bound to get better. Anyway, that's all for this week. Next week, not next week, but in a couple of weeks, the next edition of Road Less Travels Off-Road, and we will be talking to Mike Randall. That's right, Mike Randall from Channel 7, WKBW-TV. Mr. Twain himself, and also Mr. Charles Dickens himself, a man who does two different one-man shows, and they're both fabulous. So listen in again in a couple of weeks, because you won't want to miss a really fun interview that I had with Mike Randall. He's a great guy, a lot of fun to talk to. Until then, this is RLTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. 